1: Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
2: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.
1: From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Maddie Bolaños in San Francisco. L.A. County has dodged another indoor mask mandate. KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier
3: says new COVID case numbers have dropped just low enough. L.A. County health officials have pushed the pause button on reinstituting an indoor mask mandate. The data show that L.A. is right on the cusp of dropping into the CDC's medium COVID risk level. That's due to hospitalizations dipping slightly. Health officials say they don't want to create public whiplash if they continue to decline as expected. The decision also avoids a patchwork of confusing mask rules. This week, city councils in El Segundo and Beverly Hills said they wouldn't enforce a reinstituted mask mandate. Meanwhile, Pasadena and Long Beach, which operate their own public health departments separate from L.A. County, announced they would skip issuing new mask rules. Wearing a mask indoors in public places is still encouraged by health officials. L.A.'s COVID transmission remains high. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles.
1: In other news, riders on Bay Area Rapid Transit, or BART trains, will have to mask up once again. The transit agency approved an ordinance last night requiring face coverings through the beginning of October. Officials in San Francisco have declared a public health emergency in response to the monkeypox outbreak. There are currently more than 280 cases of monkeypox in the city. Here's San Francisco Health Officer Dr. Susan Phillips speaking at a news conference yesterday.
4: San Francisco will not leave anyone behind in this critical moment. We understand the difficulties in trying to get vaccinated. And let's make no mistake... Even though no one has died of monkeypox in San Francisco, it is causing severe suffering and pain for many individuals.
1: San Francisco Mayor London Breed says the declaration will help bring in more resources to help fight the growing outbreak.
3: San Francisco clearly is, based on the data, the city that needs it the most. So our declaration of emergency is to sound the alarm and to make it very clear We are in desperate need of more vaccines and desperate need of more treatment to support the people of our city who deserve health care just like anyone else.
1: Breed says to date, the city has received 12,000 vaccine doses but needs 70,000. In San Jose, a program that sent 1,500 kids to day camp for free is wrapping up today. It's paid for with COVID relief money. As we hear from KQED reporter Daisy Wynn, the city's school district is among many across the U.S. to use federal aid to help students catch up on their learning. Ten-year-old Seth Estinos is in a classroom with several boys and girls working on an elaborate project.
4: So we're going to build a robot that can
1: play soccer.
2: If you press this button, that wheel turns. And if you press the other button.
1: This is the first time he's been to any day camp. This one, held at Galarsa Elementary School and operated by Camp Galileo, focuses on art and science.
2: Last summer was kind of boring because we couldn't do much because of COVID. But compared to this summer,
1: there's more summer camps and it felt fun. Galileo's South Bay Regional Director, Aubrey Felch, says many students were socially awkward on the first day. We've noticed that There are a lot of campers that are unfamiliar
2: with classrooms or social norms in a way that we've never seen before. It just was a big change from what we've seen in the past, but also such a good support for campers who have been at home for months on end and getting the chance to have a space to learn
1: and be with others that is not school and not that type of pressure has really helped a lot of kids. A recent analysis shows school districts are setting aside a quarter of COVID relief aid to address learning loss. For the California Report, I'm Daisy Nguyen.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
2: Showing your support is easy and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED podcast too at donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.
1: Farming in California has not been a friendly place to black people, let alone black women. Only 1% of farmland in the state is Black-owned. KQED's Ariana Prale takes us to one woman-led farm in Sonoma County that's trying to
3: change that. It's a warm Sunday afternoon in Sebastopol. A large table of food and farm-fresh persimmon juice lines the porch of the big yellow house at Earthseed Permaculture Center and Farm. A DJ sets a celebratory yet relaxing mood for the group of predominantly Black and Latinx people from different parts of the Bay Area who have converged upon Earthseed for one of its regular Black-to-the-land gatherings, where the mission is to reconnect Black people to the roots of
4: Afro-Indigenous wisdom. Here's Earthseed founder Pandora Thomas. There's so few places that we can go, and it doesn't even have to be all Black people. It's like a majority, and it's basically who we choose to be around. Thomas bought this historic
3: 14-acre farm last year. It's known for its organic apple and Asian pear orchards, but Thomas has a bigger idea, turning earth seed into the first Afro-Indigenous permaculture farm in Sonoma County. Thomas explains there's a process she's following, continuing for now with the crops the farm is known for, but also listening to and observing the land. For instance, the team noticed a weed growing naturally on the farm called mullein, known to reduce inflammation and treat respiratory problems when smoked or made into a tea.
4: Right now, this is an organic farm where every all the systems make it so that we can make a lot of fruit that basically leaves the site, which isn't a bad thing. But the Afro-Indigenous permaculture goal is what will it look like when we are seeing the mullein that grows as a weed here and learning about the legacy of mullein And maybe the mullein has come into our lives because of all the respiratory issues and swelling happening in our communities right now.
3: The farm's name, Earthseed, is a nod to the fictional religion created by acclaimed science fiction author Octavia Butler, whose image graces a mural on the farm as one of its inspirations. One of the key tenets of Earthseed, educating and supporting oneself in the community. And that term, permaculture, it's a conjugation of the words permanent and culture, Coined by white Australian researcher and scientist Bill Mollison in the 1970s, it's defined as the development of agricultural ecosystems intended to be sustainable and self-sufficient, and is derived heavily from indigenous science and land practices. Or, as Earthseed's fiber arts fellow Grace Harris-Johnson bluntly puts it,
4: The history was really just a bunch of white folks that traveled across the world and watched native folks doing their thing and then decided that that could be a model. Like, wow, how amazing! In some ways, I understand the intention was to inform others on ways that are more heart-focused with the soil. But I think it's very important to not forget that permaculture is a skewed view of indigenous practices.
3: Thomas and her team acknowledge the southern Pomo and Coast Miwok land the farm sits on. The impact of Thomas's vision and the transfer of ownership was readily felt by Earthseed Farm Manager Antonio Paniagua, who rolls up on a tractor wearing a hat that reads, you are on native land. Hello.
0: Hello. Caring.
2: Caring for the earth is the main thing. We have to take care of the land, because we are already polluting it a lot. We have no conscience. We have to take care of the land.
3: Thomas hopes the farm can serve as a model for others to follow and an example to inspire, particularly Black people, whether they're in
4: agriculture or not. We are on a farm that's an orchard, But it's like, this is the classroom we've been given, the earth has given us. And the lessons are not just, okay, tell everybody how to farm. It's more, how can our communities learn how to be in alignment with the limitations, but also the bounty that the earth has to give us. Abby
3: Huff, an herbalist who currently serves as Earthseed's herb diva, is in attendance this Sunday in early July and recalls her initial encounter with Earthseed, participating in one of its first black-to-the-land gatherings last summer.
4: I remember walking down the driveway and walking up to the house and seeing all these beautiful Black people on the porch. And I just, you know, my eyes welled up and um, felt like something that's been so needed here.
3: Thomas says she's proud of the team assembling at Earthseed, and this project is as much about cultivating community as it is building a center designed to spread the values and vision of Afro-Indigenous permaculture more widely in California. For the California Report, I'm Ariana Prale in Sebastopol.
1: And now to a preview of our sister show, the California Report's weekly magazine. Across California, as COVID restrictions are lifting, so are housing protections. This means that many people are finding themselves facing eviction with no legal recourse. On this week's magazine, reporter Corey Suzuki brings us the story of Dabia Benakli in Contra Costa County. Dabia's situation is unique because she decided to fight her landlord, Stephen Pinza, in court.
2: At 10.50 a.m., the jury came filing in. That was when the trial really began.
1: Okay, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is an action for what is called unlawful detainer. S-E-K-K Investments, Walnut Creek, LLC, the landlord claims that Davia Binocli,
2: John Taylor, Stephen Pinzel went first. He didn't have an attorney. Instead, he had decided to represent himself. He said his plans to renovate the apartments were extensive, and he argued that the scale of those renovations did justify evicting Dobby and her neighbors. David Levin said no. He argued that Pinza's plans for the apartments were minor and would not have required a tenant to move out. Over the next few days, both sides brought in witnesses and experts who talked about construction timelines and permits and previous projects they worked on.
3: Mr. Luna, what's your uh, current job title?
2: Current job title is building inspection supervisor for the city of Walnut Creek Building Division. They called up Dabia and the other tenants to the stand.
3: I asked the manager in 2017 to remodel the floors and they were done. And they lived there while it was being remodeled. We also did the paint. They remodeled the new bathroom, new bathtub, new bath
2: sink. Stephen Pinza seemed to be struggling. He kept interrupting the witnesses, including Dabia,
3: but my floors are new. I don't remember. I said I need new why floors. Why would you put that in your discovery request that you needed new floors? It's just the bathroom. The floor is popping out a little bit. Oh, so, that's it. So yeah. there is damage yeah. to the floors Yeah, the bathroom. bathroom. Okay, so maybe your floors do need to be repaired. Now. Mm-hmm.
2: The judge was constantly yeah. jumping in to correct him or asking to see both attorneys <laughs> in the back. Okay, witness,
4: um, Mr. Penza, let the witness answer you, the yeah. question. Okay.
2: Uh, I Sometimes it felt more like a classroom where Penza hadn't really done the reading. On the way back to my car at the end of day three, I ran into Dabia and one of the other tenants, Desher Young. They were leaning over the railing on the top floor of the parking lot. Dabia was smoking a cigarette. She said she had just started again. I didn't record our conversation, but they didn't seem worried. I wouldn't say they seemed confident either, but it kind of felt like whatever happened was going to happen. Everyone went home, and then it was Thursday, day four, closing arguments.
1: You can hear more about the outcome of Davia's case on this week's half-hour magazine from the California Report. Tune in on your public radio station or download the California Report magazine podcast. And that's the California Report for Friday, July 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer with assistance from C.L. Muller. Our producers are Kate Wolf and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our executive editor is Ethan tovin Lindsay, And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
3: Support for the California report comes from Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. Hint Fruit infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from DrinkHint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
4: Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners.